Our second Bible reading for tonight is from Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 to 46. So starting at verse 23. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who, give you, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it amongst themselves and, and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later, he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, I will tell you the truth, that tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect the, his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Oh, he'll bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet.
Well, good evening, friends. Uh, let me extend my welcome to you as well, especially here if you're here for the first time. There is an outline of the sermon, so you might find that helpful. If you want one, raise your hand. Someone will pass one along to you. It's also for those of you who prefer a full script of the sermon as well. Uh, do keep your Bibles open. We will go through this passage today as we've been going through over the last few weeks. Uh, but let's once again turn to God in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we pray that tonight you might help us see and feel the weight of rejecting Jesus and how serious that is. So we pray, Lord, that you might make it clear to us on why we should not and why we should turn to Jesus as, a, as our Lord and Saviour. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, have you heard of the saying, digging your own grave? Heard of that saying before? Digging your own grave? You know what that means, right? It's a saying that perhaps has its origin in, in fact, the Bible. The Bible was probably, probably the one that said it first. In Psalm chapter 7, we read this. He who digs a hole and scoops it out, falls into the pit he has made. The trouble he causes recoils on himself. His violence comes down on his own head. Stop digging your own grave. Digging your own grave. So to dig your own grave is to think something or to say something or to do something that would cause yourself trouble, will bring trouble on yourself, cause your own downfall, your own ruin, your own failure. And so, for example, if you eat too much fatty food, if you like to eat just McDonald's and KFC and Hungry Jack all the time, if you only drink sugar drinks, if you only drink soft drinks all the time and that's all you have, no home-cooked meal, you're digging your own grave, right? You're setting up yourself for bad health. Well, let's just say this example. You're at the stage of life now where you hope, if it is God's will, to date someone. You hope that perhaps, maybe one day, God willing, you get married. But just say you're one of these folks who always avoids the opposite sex like a plague. You know, boys have boy germs and girls have nice attitudes or something like that. <laughs> if you avoid the opposite sex all the time and you want to date, well, in a sense, you're digging your own grave. You get, you get that saying? Well, let's just say you do want to start dating, but you have no understanding at all of personal hygiene. You smell like a, a wet dog covered with fish sauce. You're digging your own grave. It'll take a very strange man or woman to find such a smell attractive. Now, of course, they're just funny examples, comical examples, but when you think about that saying, digging your own grave, when it is true, it's in fact very sad. When it is true, it's in fact extremely foolish to go about digging your own grave, to cause your own downfall, to hurt yourself. But it does happen in life, doesn't it? People do dig their own grave. It happens even in the Bible. It happened with the wisest man of the Bible. Consider King Solomon, the greatest, one of the greatest kings of Israel's history, the wisest man to have ever lived, a great scientist. He described how nature worked, a great poet, a great songwriter, a great sage, the wisest man to have ever lived on this earth. He dug his own grave. 
you know his story, you know what he did. Because remember, what, what was it that he did? No, a wise man. This is what a wise man would do. A wise man would only get married once and only have one wife. That's God's design. He would have known that. But this guy was busy. Two wasn't enough for him. Ten wasn't enough for him. One hundred wasn't enough for him. Seven hundred wives he ended up with and three hundred concubines. I mean, how do you manage to keep peace in a family like that? And what makes it worse, it's not just 1,000 wives to love and to care for and to cherish. He's got 1,000 mother-in-laws to try to live with peace with. And so if you think about that, he dug his own grave and you listen to his story. He didn't listen to God and these wives of his eventually led him astray such that once a God worshipper became an idol worshipper. He caused his own downfall and the downfall of his own kingdom. And his kingdom was inherited by a fool of a son. And so Solomon, the wisest man, dug his own grave. It can be funny, but when it's real, when it's serious, it is such folly. And, and of course, none of, none of us would ever think that we're like him or like anyone who would go about digging our own grave. But the thing with digging your own grave is that you never know that you're doing it. And that's exactly what we see in our passage. You never know that you're digging with a shovel your own grave and you're going to fall in and die. Well, what we see in this passage is as the story progresses, as Jesus continues to teach, the grave gets deeper and deeper and deeper. And the leaders of God's people are just preparing their own death. They're digging their own grave. So let's have a look. Open your Bibles to Matthew 21. What do we see here? Well, we see here a confrontation. Jesus versus the Jewish leaders. They come to him again. Verse 23. By what authority are you doing these things, they ask? And who gave you this authority? You see, they were trying to trap Jesus once again. They've tried in the past, and now they're trying to take another shot at Jesus. Maybe this time they're thinking, maybe this time Jesus will do something wrong. Maybe this time Jesus will say something wrong. Maybe this time... He will blaspheme. Maybe this time Jesus will dig his own grave. But then how did Jesus respond? Now I hope we, we, we're seeing the pattern of Jesus. He's extremely smart, brilliant. I mean, they were trying to trap Jesus. But in Jesus' response, he turns it around and traps them. It's a brilliant tactic Jesus uses here. He, he comes back to them, not with an answer. Do you see that? He comes back with them with a question answering a question not with an answer but with a question it's a it's an excellent tactic I, I use this with our kids as well yesterday as we just uh left our driveway uh heading off to a party as soon as we left they asked us are we there yet you don't answer such a question with an answer you you're giving them the honor of their question and so you come back with a question what do you think of course not right what do you think? That's very smart, isn't it? I'm trying to be like Jesus here. <laughs> or someone else special to me, like my wife, when she asked me, how does this dress look? What do you say? You know, that's dangerous territory. You come back with a question. What do you think? And that settles the matter. But of course here, Jesus does it way better. Look at verse 24. I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? 
Was it from heaven or from men? Now, why did Jesus not just give them a direct answer? He knew the answer. He could have just said, well, of course my authority comes from God. He could have said that. Who else can give sight to the blind? Who else can heal the leper? Who else can cure the disease? Who else can cast out demons? Who else can calm the storm? Who else can raise the dead? Of course my authority comes from God. He could have said that. But why did Jesus ask a question about John the Baptist and not about himself? We well, see, here comes the brilliance of Jesus. You see, the Jewish leaders, Jesus knew what they knew. They knew their Old Testament inside out. And they would have known the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, which left the people of God in eager anticipation for the coming of God. They would have known that. And so in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, we read this. A prophecy. See, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple, says the Lord Almighty. So why do you think Jesus asked the question about John the Baptist? You see, to ask a question about John the Baptist is really to ask a question about his own identity. It puts the burden of proof on them. See, they knew that John was the messenger and he has arrived, he has come. And so if the messenger has arrived, who should they expect after the messenger? Who should they have expected after John? Well, have a look. They should have expected that the Lord will come to his temple. In this passage, who is in the temple? Who is in the temple teaching? Well, Jesus is there. Jesus is teaching. He's making a claim to them. I am the Lord you've been waiting for. John the Baptist has arrived already. I'm now the Lord in my temple. You see, it doesn't take a genius to work out that this is all connected. John has arrived, and the Lord has come now to his temple. But you see, what happens here, we see the, the hardness of their heart, the sort of like the darkness of their heart, the wickedness of their heart. They deny the truth. And so what do they do? They give their lame answer. Look at verse 27. We don't know. Of course they knew but they said we don't know and because they weren't interested in the truth jesus won't give them the truth and look at verse 27 jesus says neither will i tell you by what authority i'm doing these things and so what we're seeing here in this passage already at the beginning if anything what they were doing the jewish leaders was far more foolish than king solomon right there before them was the Lord they've been waiting centuries for, but they denied the truth. And so in a sense, they took up their shovel and started to dig their own grave. But as the story progresses, we see that grave getting deeper. You see, that wasn't their only fault. Have a look now. Jesus now uses a parable to show how they've been disobeying the father. And it's a very simple parable. A father asks his two sons to go and work in the field, the first says he won't, but he ended up doing it. The second son says he will, but he didn't. A simple parable. And so Jesus now asks, verse 31, which of the two did what his father wanted? An obvious question with an obvious answer. Verse 31, the first they answered. 
And so were they right? Well, of course they were right. What they didn't realize was that they were digging their own grave again because they were talking against themselves. You see, what they didn't know, that they were the second son that Jesus was speaking against. They were the ones who said to God, yes, of course we'll obey you, God. We've got the commandments, we've got the laws. Of course we'll obey you. But what happened when John the Baptist came and called them to repentance? Well, they didn't. They said they will. But when John the Baptist came, they didn't. Who did instead? Well, it was the scum of the earth. Those who said no to God by living their wicked lives. The prostitutes, the tax collectors. They initially said no to God, we don't want to live your way. But then when John the Baptist came and called them to repentance, what did they do? They said, yes, we obey. We will do it. We will repent. And that's why Jesus says what he does next. Look at verse 31 now. I tell you the truth. The tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. You see, they're the first son, not you. Jesus goes on, and even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. You see, we're meant to feel the weight of the darkness and hardness of their heart. You know, they've denied the truth, but now they show no obedience to God at all. No obedience to the Father at all. And so once again, they've picked up their shovels and they're starting to dig a bit deeper into their own grave. It's getting deeper and deeper yet. But more than denying the truth, more than disobeying the Father, Jesus now gives them another parable that reveals what they are about to do to him. They will brutally reject the Son. So let's, let's have a look at this next parable. Again, it's a simple, straightforward one. A landowner of a vineyard, he prepares his property well. He plants the vineyard, he does all the preparations. He protects it by putting a wall around it. He builds a tower so that they can watch out for those who try to get in. He puts a wine press in it, which means this is a farm that is self-sufficient. They don't have to take the grapes somewhere else. They can do it there or there in the farm. And so it was like leasing out the, the best property on the market. You know, the house that has everything, the spa bath, the tennis court, the swimming pool. Well, this was like that, but better. And so this landowner, he, he rents it out to some farmers and, and he goes away. But then come harvest time, he rightly wants a share of his fruits and so he sends some of his servants now what happened have a look verse 35 now the tenants seized these servants they beat one killed another and stoned a third I mean, it's meant to help us see that this is senseless brutality this is not normal human decency it's meant to get us a bit outraged here i mean that is ruthless just imagine a a real estate agent coming over to collect rent, but instead of paying him the rent that is due to the landlord, you beat him and you kill him. That is ridiculous. It's meant to help us feel that. But that was exactly what was happening in Israel's history. You see, what, what's surprising in this story is that the story didn't stop there. What's surprising here is what the landlord does next. He actually gives them another chance. He doesn't come with his military just yet. He gives them another chance. He, he sends them more servants. 
hoping that perhaps they made a mistake the first time. But what do the tenants do? They did the same thing and butchered them more. And so what happened next? Well, look at verse 37. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But what did they do? 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Why did they do such a ruthless, brutal thing? Why would anyone do such a thing? Well, you see, these tenants, they represented the leaders of God's people. They wanted the fruits of the vineyard without the responsibility to the owner. They wanted the gift without the giver. They wanted the blessings from God, but wanted nothing to do with God. They wanted the blessings without God, and so they killed the son. Now, how do we respond? How are we meant to feel after hearing a story like that? It, it, if, we're, if we're normal human beings, our blood should be boiling. How could anyone be so ruthless and brutal and so wicked? And so Jesus now, he cleverly, instead of pointing the finger, he cleverly asked them another question. Look at verse 40. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He gets them to give the answer. It's in a sense saying, what do you think you deserve for doing this? Very clever, isn't he? So how did they respond? Well, they condemned this themselves in their own response. 41. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, and he'll rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. You see, what we see in this second parable here is really the whole biblical history in miniature. The whole of the biblical story in miniature. The whole of salvation history in a story. The vineyard owner is obviously God. The tenants are the Jewish leaders. They did not do their job. God, in his kindness, he sent prophet after prophet after prophet to warn them, to, to warn them, turn around, turn back, repent, believe. But one by one, they had those prophets killed. Isaiah, the great prophet, cut in two. Jeremiah was stoned. Ezekiel was martyred. And the latest casualty was John the Baptist. But now the son has come. The son of the owner has come. And Jesus makes clear to them. They, they did not doubt this. They knew it was talking about him. Jesus makes clear what they will do with him. They will reject him and they will kill him. But you see, it's not just a, a parable that makes that clear. In fact, the Old Testament already makes that clear. And so Jesus now, he quotes from the Psalms. Jesus quotes from Psalm 118. This is to be expected. Look at verse 42. Have you never read in the scripture, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this. And it is marvellous in our eyes. See, when we read that, we're meant to feel how shocking that is. How foolish it was for the Jewish leaders to do or to even consider such a thing. The image here is like a stonemason who goes out to the quarry. The stones are cut away and he's examining the stones. This is a good cut. Let's use this one. Bring it back. We'll use it in the building. He looks at these other stones and he says, well, this one is, 
this, this is worthless, it's a bit damaged, Let, let's cast it away. But, but this verse is saying, is that that very stone that was thrown away, that God will make into the capstone, that, which is another way of saying, it's going to be the most important stone in the building, either the foundation or the, the stone that keeps the building up. And so, in a sense, what they were doing, Jesus was saying to them, you're looking at the stone, you're looking at the stone, and you're calling me worthless. You're calling me useless. You're calling me unworthy. And you're casting me aside? That's your assessment of me? Well, well, these guys, they got it all wrong because they're casting aside what will become the capstone. And so Jesus is saying to them, this parable, it's the biblical story in miniature, and you are these tenants. You are the fool in this parable. You are the one who have rejected the Son. You are the one who have rejected what will become the capstone. And that is dangerous. Do you notice Jesus? what Jesus said there? It is dangerous to reject the capstone. It's digging your own grave. Because what will God do? Look at verse 43 now. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And then 44... He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. And so that's another way of saying, however you reject this stone, if it falls on you, you'll be crushed. If you fall on it, you'll be crushed. And so when you hear what Jesus says here, there was no confusion. It was blatantly clear. They even knew that it was talking about them. They knew it. They knew I'm the tenant. I'm going to do that to the son. But if they knew that, what should they have done? Look at what they decide to do anyway. Verse 46 now. Great irony here. They looked for a way to arrest him. Isn't that strange? Jesus just told them what they'll do, and they go about doing that. It means that they want to condemn themselves to death. It's ironic, isn't it? They've just been warned, don't reject the sun, don't reject the stone, don't reject me. But they go ahead and do it. Wickedly, brutally, finding every possible way to reject the sun, the son of God. And that we know will happen a few days later after this story. And so at this point in the story, they've really dug their grave. It is deep. It is very deep. It's just a matter of them falling in now. And it is tragic, isn't it? They fulfilled the indictment on them. And so as we see a story like that from Jesus, as we hear the teachings of Jesus like that, what are we to make of that now, today for us? Well, I suspect that for many of us here, we hear what Jesus teaches here, and we think, well, at least we're not so ruthless. We would never do such a thing. At least we're not so foolish so as to go and dig my own grave, I'm not that foolish, I'm not like the Jewish leaders. But I wonder whether that's true. You see, the shocking reality, and I don't think we comfortable Christians feel this strongly enough. I don't think we feel this urgently enough. The shocking reality is that the vast majority of this world are doing exactly what the Jewish leaders did. The vast majority of the people in this world are digging their own grave. And we see that and we know that. See, let's think about this on a worldwide scale. 
worldwide scale. Isn't that what the Western world is doing to itself? Isn't that what the Western world is doing to itself, digging their own grave? It's not only shocking to hear, but it's sad to hear that the countries that are most hostile towards Jesus, the countries that are most hostile towards Christians, are those with a Christian heritage. Isn't that ironic? Europe was one time the harbinger of the Christian faith, the place of the Protestant Reformation, where Christianity became the bedrock of society and they influenced the world from Europe. But now today, most of Europe has become a secular society governed governed by laws of humanism. Countries like France and Sweden are among the highest percentage of people who explicitly deny the existence of God. They used to be majority Christian, but now they have the highest percentage of people who deny the existence of God. I mean, isn't that them digging their own grave? Or in Britain, according to one prediction, British Christianity will eventually, they say, come to an end in 2067. Churches will be adapted for secular use, demolished or abandoned. Isn't that digging their own grave? America, Australia, not too different. In our very own constitution, when we were constituted as a nation, right at the very beginning of our constitution, there's the line that reads, humbly relying on the blessing of Almighty God. That was how our nation was established and instituted. But isn't this now a nation that has turned its back on God? Though we benefit from our Christian heritage, this nation has rejected the Lord of that heritage. This nation has rejected Jesus. I mean, get Jesus out of our schools. Get Jesus out of every sphere of public life. Isn't that our nation digging our own grave? And so now there's a shift. We've seen this in, over the last few decades. There's a shift in the world. Do you know that 70% of the evangelical Christians in the world reside outside the West? I thought the West were the Christian nations, but now 70% of the evangelicals reside outside the West. It's as though what we see in this parable happening again. You see, God has taken the vineyard that belongs to, in a sense, us and given it to another. But isn't that what we see in the world today? The Western world digging their own grave, rejecting not just their Christian heritage, but the Lord, the Christ of that heritage. You see, it's not just a big uh, worldwide uh, thing that this is happening in. Let's think closer to home now. What about the church? Is the church doing its job in not digging its own grave? Or are churches also digging their own grave? Now, this might sound like a surprise to you, but the problems of many churches come not from outside, but from inside. What do you think of a church who, like this, tries to become more relevant, tries to become more progressive, more politically correct, a church that would remove the notion that Jesus died for our sins. You don't want to talk about sin in evangelism. It's an obstacle, they say, in evangelism. They will, a church, will deny the authority of Scripture. You don't want to say Scripture is the authority. 
society has progressed, especially on the issues of homosexuality and things like that. We must progress with society. Or a church that, that denies that the cross of Christ was for the sacrifice of sins. They see it as just a sad reality of human history. He was just a brutal victim of political powers. I mean, what do you think of such churches? Churches that are progressive. Churches that appear relevant. Churches that appear inoffensive. Churches that are politically correct. But if we understand anything from this passage, those type of churches are digging their own grave when they turn their backs on Jesus. But the sad reality is that they do exist. They do exist. It is very sad. Now, many of you might not know this, but you are in a Presbyterian church. We belong to a bigger body called the Presbyterian Church of Australia. Our church has its roots in Scotland, through the Church of Scotland. Our mother church, in one sense, we don't really have any theological connection with them anymore, but our mother church is that church I described before. Denies the authority of Scripture. Denies that Jesus died for our sins. Denied all those things about Jesus. Progressive might appear politically correct, but rejecting the Son. Now, David Cook, our previous moderator of our denomination, he attended the assembly of the Church of Scotland and listen to what he said. He said, I recognise that faithful congregations have left the Church of Scotland and that others have remained and opposed such abuse of the Word of God, but I see no point in symbolically representing the Presbyterian Church of Australia as such an assembly when the basis of our fellowship, the Lordship of the risen Lord Jesus Christ is so disregarded. I mean, isn't that so sad? That in a sense, the mother church now denies the Christ of the church. Isn't that so ironic? Can a church of Christ deny the Christ of the church? He went on to say, our mother church has tragically left the family home. Isn't it surprising that even churches dig their own grave? Just like the political leaders of the past. I mean, just like those Jewish leaders of the past. Churches today dig their own grave. But now let's come a step again closer to home. Not just worldwide nations, not just institutions. Let's think about us now. Those of you in here, let's think about us. Do you think any of us in here might be digging our own grave without us even knowing it? Without even you knowing it? Obviously we're thinking, of course not. We're not so foolish to do that. Or would we? Because if we understand this passage the way we should, then we should see how dangerously serious it is to be like the Jewish leaders and to reject the Son. That's what we've been warned about in this passage. It's a strong warning, very strong warning. You see, when you see danger ahead, serious danger ahead, you give your warning. That's what we have here. In fact, that's what I do with my kids. Our kids, when the weather's nice, they're playing outside on our driveway. We don't have much of a backyard or front yard, so they play on the driveway, practicing their basketball. And when I play with them, when I'm out there, I give them this warning. Don't run after the ball if it goes onto the street. Do not run after the ball if it goes onto the street. Don't chase it. Just leave it. Let cars go over. It doesn't matter. We can buy another ball. Don't run after the ball. In fact, I 
I said to them, the, the nature strip, don't even pass halfway past the nature strip and run across uh, and chase after the ball. And they asked, why? Well, because I said, you might trip over, your head might fall over the side of the gutter, a car might come across, crush your head, splatter your brains all over the place. <laughs> oh, as graphic, as graphic as could be. I mean, they laughed and I said, it's not, it's not laughing business if it happens. You see, when the danger is really this serious, there is warning. And what we have here, far more serious than that. The danger we are all facing here is far more serious. The danger of rejecting the Son. You can't look at Jesus. You can't have heard of Jesus as the King, as the Messiah, and then say, I don't think you're worthy. I think you're worthless. I'm going to cast you aside and live life my own way. You see, to do that is to dig your own grave. Because what will God do? What will God do? Won't he come and bring those wretches to a wretched end? Won't the stone that is rejected crush you? That is the judgment, that is the divine judgment that all who reject the Son will face. And so in light of how serious it is, let me end with these three things. Firstly, as gently, as politely, as lovingly as possible, I want to say, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Don't reject the only one who can save you. Don't reject the only one who is willing to lay down his life to save you. Don't reject the only one who will bring you to God the Father. Don't be a fool and dig your own grave. That will be foolish. And our prayer, of course, is that none of you will be so foolish. That is our prayer. Secondly, don't be so blind. Don't be so blind. If we who are already Christians, we can't go on living our lives blindly. We need to see this world with gospel eyes. The vast majority of those around us are digging their own graves. And that should break our hearts. What are we doing about it? Are we standing and watching with our arms crossed as people dig their own death? What are we doing about it? If you see someone who wants to commit suicide, jump off the bridge, wouldn't you do with all your power try to stop that from happening? If you see someone digging their own grave, wouldn't you want to do with all your power to stop that from happening? At our growth group this past week, we had a great discussion about how in heaven, there will be some people in heaven, and this is the sad reality, some in heaven who will perfectly enjoy the joy and peace and glory of heaven who are there as one who has just escaped the flames. They've got nothing to show for. They've lived their life not really producing much fruit, producing no fruit. And so they'll be there in heaven thinking, I've actually wasted my life. They've got nothing to show for. They've lived for themselves. They live for, the, for their own concerns. They live their lives blindly to all those around them who are digging their own graves. I mean, how will you answer God one day? Didn't you see all those people you were living with, who you studied with and who you worked with, your friends, your colleague, your brother, your sister, your parents? Didn't you see it? They were, in fact, digging their own graves. What were you doing about it? Didn't you try to stop them? And so, don't be a fool. 
Now, don't be so blind. You see, the destiny of those who reject Jesus is far more dangerous than it seems. But finally, I want to end with this. Don't stop marveling. Don't stop marveling. We read here that the stone that the builders have rejected has become the capstone and it is marvellous in our eyes. You see, it's a wonderful, a glorious, a wonderful thing that God would send his son into this world who at the cross went into our grave in our place that we might have the life he died to win. Don't stop marvelling at the cross of Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you will grant us all gospel eyes as we live our lives. Help us to not live foolishly as to dig our own graves, as to reject Jesus in any way. We pray, Lord, that you help us to not live blindly from the fate, from the destiny of all those around us where there is no hope. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you help us never stop marveling at the cross of Christ, the Lord Jesus who went into our grave for us, that we might have life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.